Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Zena Hitz is a tutor in the Great Books Program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. She is the author of a recent book out with Princeton University Press entitled Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of Intellectual Life. Our topic today. Welcome, Zena. Thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be here. All right. Well, so lost in thought. Intellectuals, they get lost a lot. Is that right? <laughs> Not lost enough, in my opinion. <laughs> so I'm in, this is a pro lot. This is a pro getting lost book. All right. All right. Well, uh, that was a popular song a, a while, you know, back in the mid 20th century. Uh, let's get lost. So um, uh, the prologue for your book has an interesting title, How Washing Dishes Restored my intellectual life uh and that was actually that was my first job my brother and i got jobs at age 15 washing dishes at the at the country club uh a few you know a mile away it was it was an eye opener uh in the middle of of, of my reading time but it didn't do that for me Zena. i didn't build my intellectual life there there you know in the steam uh, on that big giant wa- dishwashing machine how did that work for you well, uh, I, it must be said at the time when I undertook dishwashing as a, a large portion of my life, which was not incidentally as a job, I, it was as a member of a Catholic religious community in Canada called Madonna House, uh, where washing dishes is one of our central activities. It, I had already been uh, a professional intellectual for some time. Uh, I was a bookworm of a child. Uh, I went to a liberal arts college. I went to St. John's where I teach now as an undergraduate. And that was very much fostered in me, this sort of earnest bookworm, uh, always reading, always inquiring, always up for a conversation. So I did what many people like me did, which is to go to graduate school in philosophy and classics. I became a professor, scholar and professor. Uh, of classical philosophy. And uh, as time went on, I got more and more alienated from uh, my work, uh, from my institutions. And I felt that I'd lost in, lost touch with what was meaningful about intellectual life, intellectual work. So I uh, got so fed up, I, I left the profession. Uh, I, I entered this community. I was there for three years, uh, which is a substantive chunk of time, uh, not, not uh, 
could have been longer, I suppose. Um, I don't know if it should have been shorter. Uh, and when I was there, I really got a sense of, through my own reflection and through thinking about my life and trying to live uh, some kind of intellectual life in this community, I started to think about the ways in which intellectual life was a part of a full human life. That is part of an ordinary life and part of being a human being. Uh, so in other words, part of what the book tries to express is this insight that I had at that time that uh, reading, thinking, studying, pondering, these are part of what makes human beings flourish. Uh, it's part of what makes a good life for us. And our, our institutions, our professions, uh, aren't necessarily in touch with that. So I wrote the book in order to present a view of intellectual life as something human, as something ordinary, as something infinitely rich, uh, as something not focused on uh, achievement or getting a job or personal advancement, um, but on uh, living a richer inner life uh, and thinking about all the ways in which that can benefit uh, an individual and a community. You know, you mentioned, quote, your gradual and crushing disillusionment with academic life. You want to give us an example of that? You know, I think a lot of it, that, there are two examples I can think, I mentioned in the book in which I are still salient. One is for professors, it's, it's being a professor, especially on a tenure line, which is of course less common these days than it was even, uh, you know, 15 years ago when when I was writing about, um, it's a it's a pretty luxurious life. That is, you can get research money for trips to Europe and um, you know develop an interest in fine wine and things like that. And I think that many professors, many people like myself, get fixated on matters of prestige, matters of social status. There's a very, very highly specialized, highly um, detailed a status ladder at the top end of academia. And uh, many people lose themselves in uh, counting the marks on the status ladder. That's one example of the thing which caused my disillusionment. And I, and I want to be clear, that was partly because of what that environment did to me personally, that is the way in which I responded to it. So it wasn't just that there were other people acting this way, it was that I found myself falling into this kind of trap. That's one example. The second example, which I think in a way is more serious and more um, pressing now, be given how um, how small the world of elite academia really is, it has to do with the teaching that goes on in our university classrooms. It's very much a large scale uh, factory style sort of teaching. And I think it's really, uh, it's not set up to nurture serious learning, uh, especially in the humanities. So if you have a class of 60 to 70 people and they're there for a variety of reasons, some of them are there because they're interested, some of them are there because it fills a requirement, you've got to find a way to give us readings and assignments and evaluate those assignments. And the pressure is very much towards simplifying, dumbing down, bullet points. Um, so you, you, you reduce your philosophy, your philosophizing, as the case with me, I was a philosophy professor. You reduce it to some bullet points, which can be absorbed. Um, you look for the bullet points in the work that the students turn in. 
and you give out your your Bs or your B minuses or your B pluses and your A's for the person that's really done a lot of work or maybe shows some interest. And that seems to me not uh, not real teaching and not real learning. And that real teaching and learning takes place uh, in a smaller environment. It involves personal mentoring. Uh, it involves uh, personal relationships between the teacher and the student where you can pass on habits of mind, um, habits of reading, habits of thinking, matters of taste. Uh, and all of that is 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 structurally absent from uh, most university classrooms. And uh, so I found that really disillusioning. I found my role in it uh, very discouraging. And I, I struggled and tried to find various ways of undermining it from within, so to speak, you know, having uh, smaller classes set up the desks in a circle and have a conversation, a uh, assigning primary sources like Plato's Republic instead of um, shorter things that could be easily uh, digested and, and broken down. Uh, but I found that didn't work with the baseline expectations of the institutions. So uh, there are many people who find a way. Uh, they they carve out a little niche for themselves within these huge institutions, and they pass on something like real learning. So there are a lot of good teachers in the world, in other words, and I don't mean to denigrate them, but they do what they do uh, against the grain. Their institutions aren't helping them. Their administrators aren't helping them. Even their students aren't helping them. So I I became very alarmed, and I've I'm still very alarmed. In fact, maybe even more alarmed than I was that this type of learning, liberal learning, uh, serious learning, is, is really just not being passed on in a regular way in our, in our colleges and universities. The liberal learning you describe is very labor intensive. It's not very economically efficient. In you know humanities seminar, you're teaching eight people Whereas, you know, in the psychology, sophomore psychology course, you can teach 300. So just in terms of the, the labor costs, one can see how schools would you know, drift toward you know, the, the big giant classes and the big rooms. And the, as you say, the, the factory model. And those smaller classes, you know, one thing you can note, those smaller classes, as you said a moment ago, they're increasingly taught by adjuncts, right? I mean, things like freshman composition, uh, the, the basic sm smaller introductory courses, you often have adjuncts. Or even, even the fre big freshman lecture, uh, lecture courses are taught by lecturers, uh, not by a tenure track. And so, yeah, you can see the, the, the rationalization going on here and that you, you, just, you just got turned off. Uh, let me ask you this. Why aren't more undergraduates uh, demanding something different? Why aren't, why aren't more undergraduates saying, I'm not going to sign up for a course with 300 students? In it, I, I want small classes and I want contact with teachers. Is, is there a, a demand by that among the undergraduates? You know, I, uh, I think it's probably not a wide movement. I think there may be some students. I mean, I've met students, you know, I, I give lectures for the Thomistic Institutes. I visit a lot of colleges 
college campuses that way. And I've met students who seek out those kinds of classes, but I think they're a relative rarity. I think honestly, everyone has conspired to indoctrinate the young people that what's going on is fine, that the type of education they're getting is what's to be expected. And that's a, a cooperative endeavor by administrators who, as you're saying, are looking for the bottom line. They want to get as many students as they can into those classrooms to save money. It's also in the interests, uh, the perceived interests of many research faculty. That is, they don't want to have to teach what they call service courses. They don't want a teaching intensive job. They want time for their research. So there's there's pressure in a lot of directions against uh, communicating to students what a good education is. Uh, and of course, as time has gone on, uh, this is after all, after some decades of decline in higher education, I think, uh, the moment that we're in right now, they, we don't even necessarily have a memory of what we've lost. Now, I'm in a strange situation, as many of us are, but uh, you know, I, I, I teach at this tiny, strange school where we still have small classes and where we where we um, practice this kind of mentoring, and where we don't uh, don't generally hire adjuncts, uh, we're we're members of a faculty, uh, more or less equal basis. So I I I I can see that uh, there are still some institutions out there that function like that, and that they're doing, as far as I can see, a, a much much better job of teaching than at these larger institutions. And I say that as someone who taught for some years in uh, good public institutions and now have taught for some years back at St. John's. And the difference is astonishing to me, the difference in the quality of the education that the students receive. Chapter two is on learning and joy. Now, Zena, I've got a 15-year-old son and I see him doing his homework. He's not smiling. He, he doesn't look like he's having any fun. What do you mean by the, the if it, can we tag, how do I tap into the joy of learning here? You know, it's funny. I think the examples that I give in the first chapter, so I wanted to have a lot of images, a lot of stories about happy people leading intellectual lives. <laughs> Happy in a funny sense, right? Some of them are, are people under terrible circumstances, prisoners or people who are living under totalitarianism, um, but people who are flourishing thanks to intellectual work. Now, many of those people, many of the examples are what you'd call autodidacts. That is, there are people who are coming to learning on their own without institutions. And they're uh, amateurs in the etymological sense. That is, they're, they're beginners. They, they're doing this out of love. And I think that our learning, doing something that you have to do is uh, it's a cliche, but I think there's truth in it. It's often a way to kill the joy in it. So, uh, you, you know, it's, um, I, 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 it's a little hard for me to give advice to parents. I'm not a parent myself, but I, I'd suspect that if you set up projects that were not connected to the school system, that you would suddenly find a uh, spark of interest, sparks of joy that you wouldn't see otherwise. For many young people, especially today's young people, uh, it's, it's, it's a very achievement-focused culture, and they associate learning with uh, you know, finding their way on this achievement ladder, that is being a success rather than a loser, 
and that that adds a lot of uh, anxiety pressure of various kinds. Um, and people who are good at it, of course, people who are competitive, as I was as a student, they often love it. Uh, they love even the competitive parts of it because it gives them victories over others. Uh, but and that in turn can turn into joy. Sort of as I put it in the book, the love of learning is something natural. It's something inbuilt in us. And uh, it can be tapped into in a variety of ways that are unexpected. So I think there's, in other words, there's two different ways it can happen. I mean, sure, many more than two. One way is, you know, as it happened to me, you have, and many people, you're, you're young and competitive. You learn because it's the way to get ahead. Uh, and then it turns out you like learning and you get kind of hooked on it. But I think for other people, uh, finding projects which are not connected to an agenda, which are open-ended, which allow a certain amount of freedom of mind. It could be a, a project in uh, natural history, botany, investigating plants or animals. It could be a serious reading project, reading a book carefully and slowly uh, with some friends or with a mentor. Uh, but I, you need some some open-endedness, some freedom, and uh, the students need to be directing themselves, I think, to to get the to get the joy out of it. So, in other words, you want to try to create the circumstances uh, where uh, an autodidact would flourish, um, and uh, and I think the the incentives are inbuilt you have to have confidence that they will kick in in the right circumstances and, and keep trying until something clicks. Yeah, you, you mentioned competition. It made me think I, I actually said to my son a while back, when people are talking about something and you know exactly what they're talking about, that's a good feeling. And when you know more about what they're talking about than they do, that's a really good feeling. Right. Uh, so that, yeah, that's one of the things I, I approach in the book, because on the one hand, it's can be an entryway into real intellectual life. That is this kind of competition, uh, wanting to know as much, wanting to know more. I had an older brother uh, who um, always knew more than I did. And I think, honestly, that's one of the key engines of my intellectual growth was, you know, trying to keep up with my older brother, which which never worked. I always lost. Uh, so it's a gateway in. It, it, it has the danger if you if we go back to thinking about what was wrong with academia, what what are the ills that face it? Uh, you can end up just doing it for the competition, and you can end up not getting connect not connecting with uh, the deepest joys of learning. Uh, not really. Uh, competition is so it's it's useful as a gateway, but it, you've got to leave it behind at some point. In other words or you're not going to really get into the real thing. One thing you know, especially this fits with the autodidacts who may be doing other things in their lives, is that uh, I, I, I read something that struck me in the book. You were quoting someone else, but all you need to enjoy a full intellectual life is two hours a day, right? That's right. That's from uh, Sertilange. Uh, the Dominican priest who wrote the classic uh, Intellectual Life. And it's so interesting to think about the culture that that book comes out. It's written in the 1920s, um, where he's writing for working people, ordinary people, not people that become college professors, but people who have a job and might be able to carve out, and maybe also a family, they, they might be able to carve out two hours a day to study. And so he gives them practical advice as to how to do that. 
that's not a project that uh, you see many books for nowadays. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write my book, I wanted to try to, to do my part to try to revive this culture of seeing learning as part of your life. Uh, so yes, two hours a day. Uh, you know, I think there's another book called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day, which has got to be one of the great titles of all time. I think it's even less. It's 45 minutes a day of serious thinking plus a few evenings of reading. So you just need to carve out a, a little chunk of space, a little beachhead, a little safe haven, and guard it uh, as fiercely as you can and pursue uh, whatever endeavor um, calls out to your heart and, and pursue it in a way that's, that's persistent and that uh, yields some progress in order to encourage you to keep going in it. You take the world as something that needs not so much to be studied, at least not all the time, but often something that needs to be escaped. You use the word escaped. Why is that? Well, the world in the sense that I'm interested in is not the, not the natural world, not the world as it is, but the world in, um, as we might find it in something like the Gospel of John, that is the the locus of competition, social striving, the, the search for money and power. So it's the world, in other words, is where it's the locus of social competition. And that world of social competition gives us a certain image of who we are as human beings. Now, we may be at the bottom of the barrel, in which case it's particularly clear. So we may be uh, a service worker, a cleaning lady, uh, an adjunct, uh, whatever one might be at the at the at the bottom of the of the social barrel, um, and then it's obvious that your world of social competition is not giving an accurate picture of of who you are, of your of your value and your dignity as a human being. Uh, but it's also true that even if you're at the top end, even if you're successful, if you're if you're wealthy, if you have a prestigious work, if you're um, good looking, if you receive a lot of praise and a lot of honor. Um, that's also not giving you an accurate view of your value as a human being. That is, your your value is um, both more and less than that. You're you're not just a um, uh, a bank account. You're not just a successful, uh, you know, 40k follower Twitter account. You're um, you're a, a human being with various capacities to, to love and to know. And that's what we all need to be in touch with in order to flourish. So withdrawing from the world is necessary in order to get in touch with our real human capacities, our deepest human capacities. It doesn't, I've been misunderstood on this point sometimes. It doesn't mean somehow that you can never interact with the outside world, that even that you have to permanently remove yourself from social competition like business or politics. Uh, but it means you have to keep those things in perspective and you have to, to keep in mind that your, your worth does not rest in uh, the success or the failure of those projects. And I also think incidentally that, you know, if you, just take politics for example as a realm of social competition. That's that's it's on our, it's election year. It's all all of our minds in some way or another. Uh, it's a competition for power. Uh, we obsess many of us, many of us Americans, many of us media media saturated Americans. We obsess with 
how power might be gained or lost or, you know, the effect of this ad or this event or this consultant or this movement or that one. And that, I think, diminishes actually our capacity to understand politics. I think you need to go into history, go into the past, uh, think about um, human communities in a variety of times and places, and then you start to get some actual insight into uh, the world that we live in. So it's on the one hand necessary for our dignity, but it's also, I think, necessary for for real understanding of of the environment that we live in and 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 the practices that in which we're implicated, in which we have to in which we have to act. Uh, you talk a little bit about this issue here. Does intellectual life require a certain measure of asceticism? Yes, so it does. Uh, that's connected with withdrawal from the world or escape from the world. Uh, when you leave the world of social competition, it's often uh, a sacrifice. Uh, it's painful. And that's true, especially for successful people. So it's you, you, at least speaking for myself, there was a point in my life where I had become more or less addicted, and I still have it in me, more or less addicted to positive social reinforcement, addicted to certain kinds of success, addicted to movements up the, the scale of social competition. Uh, and one has to sacrifice that kind of pleasure, uh, that kind of gain, in order to get into with a, to the deepest uh, parts of oneself. And that, that's connected to my thinking about my time in the religious community in Canada, where uh, you know, I gave up uh, a, a career that was going very well. Um, uh, my friends, uh, I had to put a ton of my books in storage, which was probably the most painful thing I had to do. Uh, say goodbye to people, uh, leave behind control over my life. It was a very, uh, very difficult sacrifice to make. And uh, what I discovered at the other end of it is something which is a, a bit of a... a standard line in spiritual classics, but it's true that uh, there's greater flourishing on the other end of that sacrifice. That is, we don't choose suffering uh, because we hate ourselves or because pain is somehow intrinsically good. We seek asceticism, we seek sacrifice and asceticism because the way human beings are put together, we have all kinds of desires and a lot of our desires are really not good for us. So we have to discipline the, the, the kinds of desires that are not good for us in order to tap into the ones that can really give our lives meaning and depth. You mentioned the bookworm a little while ago, and you call actually a, a figure in, in the Bible, Mary, a bookworm. How is Mary a bookworm? <laughs> well, this is one tradition. Uh, I want to be clear. Uh, it's... It's not more. It's not morally or spiritually required to adhere to this tradition, but it is very old. So it's you see it in uh, medieval and Renaissance art. Mary at the Annunciation very often is is in a study or is reading. Uh, you see her as the Queen of Heaven with a book in her lap. You sometimes even see her with young children, with John the Baptist or with baby Jesus, reading as she's as she's watching children. Uh, it goes back. Uh, to origin, so the, the the church father from the second century, one of the oldest church fathers, earliest church fathers that is, and uh, origin uh, believed that Mary would have been 
uh, a holy wise person. And so she would have known the scriptures backwards and forwards. Uh, she wouldn't have been surprised by the angel Gabriel's invitation to her to bear the Messiah. She would have read the prophecies and would have known what it would have meant so that her, her yes, uh, her fiat, her agreement to bear the Messiah is fully knowledgeable. That is, she knows what this means. She knows what she's getting into. And she knows this because she's read and studied the scriptures. Uh, and uh, it's taken up, it's started by origin as far as I can see, and it's taken up through the church fathers, uh, taken for granted that she would have had all of the virtues, that is, including intellectual virtues. She would have been uh, curious and she would have loved to learn. She would have been wise. Uh, and that, in especially in early, late antiquity, that's associated with, with learning. Uh, so I was very touched to find this tradition myself when I discovered it. So I wanted to pass it on that uh, this is this is part of uh, one of the traditions in the very rich Catholic faith is that uh, Our Lady, the Mother of God, it was uh, was a, a voracious reader who loved to learn. Uh, it's we don't hear it every day, so I thought I would try to try to say it a little more clearly. Sure, sure. Uh, last question: Is the internet the end of intellectual life? Yes or no? Quickly, yes or no? <laughs> um, my heart says yes, but my mind says no, uh, in that the internet is a tool for making connections. Um, our intellectual institutions are dying. Uh, they need to be revived. And so the internet needs to be used uh, to the fullness of its capacity to connect us with one another so that we can build uh, flourishing intellectual institutions. Uh, of a kind that we don't have right now. So it's a it's a tool, it's not an end in itself, it's very dangerous, uh, it's done a lot of damage, but it is it is not ultimately the enemy. The enemy is, is uh, of course, within all of us. So we have to, to struggle and fight and seek to understand. <laughs> okay, very, very good. Zena Hitz, uh, thank you for joining us. The book is Lost in Thought. The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Thank you, Zena. Thanks so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.